0: My name is Katie, I'm one of the Co-Presidents of the Dundee University Surgical Society this year and this morning I have Mr Rod Mountain and Mr Paul White with me Um, and they're here to talk about surgical skills training. So would you both like to go ahead and introduce yourselves?
1: Yeah Katie, thanks so much for inviting me along. Um, uh, Having worked together with Paul for years in Dundee as um, skills trainers in all its different guises. It's lovely to be with you and to sh- share a few ideas, basically on the experience that we've had for a number of years here. So, thank you.
2: Yeah, I just echo what uh, Rod was saying. You know, I've worked in Dundee for quite a long time. Recently retired, so I'm not in actively in clinical practice. But worked here for 25 years, primarily as a as a skills trainer, and all of that time with some attachment to the surgical skills unit. So, I've got strong views and ideas about achieving the skill set necessary for, for surgery, which is n- not always what medical students think, think it's going to be. I don't know if you want to know yeah. more about our background, but... Uh.
0: Yeah, of, of course. Well, it sounds like you've both had very um, interesting and varied careers, so it'll be interesting to hear about how you maybe came across different skills trainers throughout your careers who, who affected you and um, uh, you used as, as role models. So w- would we maybe like to start there?
1: Yeah,
2: Yeah? Okay, thanks. Well, I I went to medical school in New Zealand, Mm -hmm. uh, which is why I've got this slightly strange Mm -hmm. accent. And then I had a varied career of uh, working there. Um, In fact, I'd always wanted to do general practice, so it wasn't something that I was driven to do surgery, and it was really along the way that I realised I I liked the surgical specialties more. I felt it suited my personality and skill set better. Uh, I did some general practice locums uh, but found it really quite hard. You've got so much you've got to do and, and so much of the time you're, you're um, helping people on their life journey rather than actually dealing with a condition and trying to, trying to fix it, which is what attracted me to, to surgery. So role models, I, I, can't, I wouldn't come up with a single person. I think I had a lot of good role models right from, even as a medical student, I had a, had a, a, a colleague a mate who actually became a liver transplant surgeon eventually and both, both of us had similar interests and um, I, I think I looked to him a lot of the time and in the end, uh, having done an internship in a teaching hospital, we both realised that you don't get much to do, you know, as a medical student you maybe think surgical skills, I'm, I'm going to get out there on day one and I'm going to be in there in the operating theatre, suturing and all this sort of thing, but very often you're a bit of a dog's body uh, as an intern. And we, w- we worked that one out, so we went and both went to a district general hospital in southern New Zealand and we got an awful lot to do, you know, like running A&E as, as first year house officers at night. And that just cemented my view, really, that I, w- I wanted to do surgery. And there just various role models after that. I, I don't remember the bad ones very well, <laughs> but the good ones were, were registrars that were prepared to be kind and let you do things and it made me realise well, that, you you know, that, that, that teaching is a bit of a sacrifice you've got to give something up it, it, it's, you're giving something up to someone else and uh, you know there's a philosophy behind that that we don't need to go into that right now but obviously if you want renewal you have to have people that have the skills in the future and you've got to believe in that uh, and I think for Rod and I it both came naturally we were lucky that way It, it just, it's almost part of the DNA You know, I, I couldn't have been a doctor any other way actually I don't think and, and being he- happy and satisfied with my job.
0: That's brilliant, Yeah, and it's really good to have that advice for for any surgical trainees listening as well and um, who yeah. are interested in teaching. And Roger, you said you felt the same way.
1: Yeah, much the same. It's interesting, Paul, mentioning uh, role models. I went, I'm South African of origin, med school in Cape Town, and we had fantastic role models in neurology. Yeah. So when I left med school, I wanted to become a neurologist. Um, and into jobs that i did after med school realized that i actually enjoyed the craft side of being a surgeon in other words the using your hands that actual practical application of doing things and i think that's brought a whole lot of joy in my career when i look at um, what i've done i love uh, teaching the next generation the particularly the craft element. Yes, a whole lot of the things that you need to do and the skills required in breaking bad news, say in a clinic and those interpersonal team skills. But I absolutely just love teaching somebody the craft of how to do an operation, You know, all the stages that you you need to go through. Mm -hmm. So one of my, um, really uh, a role when you're thinking about role models, um, a role model for me was a person called David Schuller in the States. Ohio where I did a head and neck fellowship and Dave was just brilliant at uh, nurturing you um, Getting a clear understanding of where you were as a surgeon by that stage. I was nearing the end of my ENT training in Scotland Uh, but then um, Learning to trust you and there was a huge element of he'd watch you do something help you with it And once there was a level of trust he'd walk away and mm-hmm. be in another room and be available to be called in at any time. And he had a real skill at uh, developing a, a relationship of trust between trainer and trainee, which I think is key to a successful um, you know, product in the outcome of, a, of the next generation of surgeon. So mm-hmm. he really knew how to do that.
0: And do uh, you feel you've managed to take um, some of that into your own practice's attention? Oh, completely,
1: completely. And um, another skill, and this is not on the theme of actually operative skills, But Dave had a principal in the clinics. Um, This is even in North America, you know, a completely different system of in any decision making in a clinic, doctor, patient, family, he would always go go through the benefits, the risks of what he he might offer. He'd always go through alternatives, that there was another way. Mm. Um, And very interestingly, he would always bring in the option of not intervening in any way. And that's something we often really forget. In all branches of medicine, that they're sometimes doing less is more. And Dave, that skill I just took into everything I did as a head and neck cancer surgeon. And I think there's always an alternative to do something differently, but there's an there's an option to not intervene, still care for somebody, still support them, but not another operation or another drug, and potentially the harm that we do as 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 surgeons.
2: Yeah.
0: Definitely, and. On the theme of um, taking advice maybe from, from someone w- out with the UK, um, would we be able to talk a little bit about how um, how practising in, in other countries maybe differed to here and how that affected your skills training maybe?
2: Yeah, um, I think that the, the, the experience I had was quite different to Rod's yeah. <laughs> in that Uh, he he was so lucky to have that excellent role model and it wasn't just surgical skills it was also um, managing different counseling situations with patients giving them options talking about complications Um, and my training was through the Australasian College and it was very much procedure based Um, and the the whole key crux of it was getting your logbook in order which was getting the procedures up and I had some uh, fantastic trainers that, like Rob, w- were, like Rod had, were prepared to let you do things, and uh, provided a pretty good learning environment, and that um, they weren't critical, and gave you a step-wise approach. I, I had a particularly good uh, rhinoplasty trainer, and that affected my whole career, because it became a, re- a real interest. And uh, so, um, and then when I came to the UK, at the same stage Rod went to the States, I, I worked in a unit in Glasgow which was quite different. I mean, there, there were trainers there who were really bullies, you know, in all honesty, and it was a bit of a, sh- a culture shock for me, you know, having had trainers who were generally pretty supportive, you know, there was the odd one or two that, that um, was quite hard on you and... and, and like to put people down but the, the Glasgow culture was really quite different. It was it was very dog-eat-dog one-upmanship and I, I realised that wasn't a good environment for learning surgical skills and I don't think I really learned any. If anything I was passing them on to other people uh, but it taught me a lot about what um, other other departments are like and uh, I think that's one of the advantages of moving around. It doesn't necessarily to be to other parts of the world but there are different hospitals different departments have different cultures and that can make a big you know, have a big effect on your learning and your quality of life you know which is actually probably oh, both yeah. why we came to Dundee I mean I, I, I was a consultant in the west of Scotland before I came here and uh, it, it wasn't a teaching hospital job and so I was very much attracted for the same reason to come and work uh, with uh, in the surgical skills unit that was the, the, the draw for me yeah and mm-hmm. I think not every surgeon is going to be a teacher. You know, that's you. You got to expect see it from a point of view. People have different personalities and priorities, and some people are fantastic surgeons. But they just can't teach. That doesn't mean they shouldn't be there doing it. You've got to have a spectrum, and. I, th- I was thinking of this the other day, the uh, best analogy is to think of Lewis Hamilton. Is, would he be a good driving instructor? I don't think so. No, it, it, and, mm-hmm. and the reality is that the, the teacher is very much a driving instructor. It's not that glamorous, and, it, and it's quite a big sacrifice. Um, but if you get joy in that, it's very rewarding, and you can do so much good, because every you know probably trained hundreds of... Uh, plastics and ENT surges in rhinoplasty and you know, that's something now that I'm retired I look back on and think yeah, that was a good thing to do. Whereas mm-hmm. if I just ploughed my own furrow it would have o- only been yeah. the people I treated.
0: What did you learn about teaching over the course of those 100 to 200 days? <laughs>
2: <rhinoplasties? laughs> that's a big question. I think some of the things Rod said that uh, you have to break surgery down into steps. And don't try and get to the end. You've got to do it in a stepwise fashion and focus on a particular goal for the stage you're at if you're a year one trainee. Um, And learn those skills before you move on to the next. And operations are like that as well. There are steps in the operations where you've got to make sure you complete the first mm-hmm. step properly and not just half-pie do it. Otherwise, it just makes it more difficult. You're doing a thyroid operation and, and you haven't uh, done the exposure properly and you're working down a, a dark hole with a lot of bleeding. Suddenly, you've got a problem on your hands. So um, I think stepwise approach... Um, sorry, what was, the, what was the other aspect to your question? I guess just what what did you learn
0: about teaching? So so um, over the course of, of training those hundred people um, and yeah. maybe if we start with the first person and um, if yeah. you can yeah. remember it's
1: a, it's a good question because I think we you, you get much like you were saying trainers all different yeah. and some people maybe shouldn't be yes full-time trainers they can have yeah. other roles but you have that same spectrum of trainees that are coming yeah. through yes in a whole lot of different ways and I yeah. that struck me as a trainer Mm. Is that you? It's a new relationship every time you you meet up with it, and and we we're all different. Yeah, and and how you nurture that—that's that's that's quite a quite a skill.
2: It is quite a skill, and as you say, it's a relationship. It's not a relationship you choose it's handed to you when you've got a trainee and actually when you're running a course you've, you've got a whole bunch of people there that, that are coming to learn something they're not necessarily people that you would necessarily get on with or they usually usually do because you've got this common common focus I think one of the things that surprised me in the, in the, in the latter years to answer your question is most people can do surgery it's not mm-hmm. as demanding as you think you see it on tv and you see guys doing heart surgery and um, all these sort of fly-on-the-wall documentaries and think that's amazing but to get there those people have made a huge sacrifice and it's taken them years and they've given a lot of stuff up to get to that level but the actual technical aspects of the skill are not that difficult if you do it in the right way in stages and what what struck me is 20 years ago when I was working in the skills unit there would be a number of delegates that will come along and you'd think Sorry, I'm just putting my hand on my, on my <laughs> hand there in a gesture of despair that you that you just know they're never, they're never technically going to be able to make it. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you synthesize that down, I would say laterally, it's less than 1 in 10. And you'll get it within that 90% of people that can do it. You've got a huge spectrum. You've got people that just straight away... Oh, the they people that are completely... I don't know yeah. what the right term is, gifted. Yeah. I don't
1: know what it is, but they yeah. just you know, pick up a, a, a skill very, very quickly where others... Yep. I, I I, was a person that had to do things over and over again yep. to develop a skin. I mm-hmm. wasn't a rock star sort of surgeon, but there are yep. some people who are just super talented and you know you can move them on quicker. Yep.
2: And um, they're often not the best teachers because they yeah. do things automatically. Mm-hmm. And the best teachers usually someone like Rod or myself that have had to think about, each stage so that you can then communicate it you intellectualize what you're doing yeah. and all the pros and cons and where it can go wrong and you're able to pass that on whereas your lewis hamilton surgeon mm-hmm. he's just getting in the car and he's going you know and it, it, it just flows automatically and it, that individual often it has difficulty passing the information on how they do it because i'm not sure they know themselves it just happens yeah it's working at a different level
1: yeah, there's a lovely word um that comes into a lot of craft based things is your, your tacit knowledge your tacit understandability it's it's that stage where you reach reach in doing a craft where you almost don't you you in autopilot mm. it's, it's just happening you're, you're not yeah. having to celebrate at a high level and keep thinking about it it's like learning to ski learning to ride a bike you reach a stage where it's actually mm. easy yeah and I, paul i completely agree with the the actual Surgical operative skill is something that you can learn, and all most people can learn if you do it in stages. Mm. Some of the most more challenging things I would suggest in my career, uh, stuff that I wasn't particularly well trained at med school for, was the psychology of the job mm. and the really bringing the social cultural dimension of that particular person that you're having to help on this journey. That wasn't taught well enough. And it is so, so important. The psychology of what we do uh, in all levels, you know, right from clinics and having conversations, breaking bad news, through to team working, and the psychology of a team and teams that work well, cultures that work well, yeah. so, so important. Um, the skills, are, the actual practical skills are quite easy.
2: They are. Yeah, if they're taught in the right way and you get if you can get a chance to, to simulate, do simulation, and you're not uh, having to work outside your expertise. If, if, if someone, say the boss is away and you're suddenly expected to do something you've maybe only assisted at before, I mean, that's, that's a recipe for disaster and you're being put in a difficult situation. But if you're doing the appropriate things at the right stage, it's not difficult. And, and my experience in the last 10 years is since they brought in national selection, which surprised me, because I, I didn't think it was a great idea. Before that, you would select locally within your own um, deanery and then they brought in national selection for surgery in the whole UK for each specialty. And what I noticed after that is a huge change in that virtually all of the core trainees coming through the skills unit learning things like facial plastic surgery, rhinoplasty, endoscopic surgery, they just seemed so much more able. And there were less of the one in ten that you thought, I, I don't know how you're ever going to be able to learn to do this because you don't have the manual dexterity or the coordination to do it. You still get them, but a lot less, and I, can, I don't know why that is. Is it, is it something to do with the level of performance you've got to get to, so where, where those people are being screened out? I, I, I don't know. That was just, just a, 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 an, an observation.
0: So it, it sounds like the relationship that you form with your student is really important
2: when it comes to teaching, or that's that's as a trainee, I think oh, it's, so, it's yeah, super it's important. It's a it's
1: a two way. It's like any relationship in life. It's two way. It's based on trust. It's mm. um, it it needs to be nurtured. Um, ideally, I used to love it if uh, you know there was a trainee with me for six months or a year. Mm you know, that you really have time to go through that step. by the end of six months or a year, you'd be able to do a parotidectomy and I would just gently be in the background assisting you as an example, rather than doing the, the operating. Um, p- periods of time that are too short in a relationship, you can't, it's a human thing. You don't have the opportunity to really develop that trust and uh, working relationship. I don't, I don't know if you found that I agree call. with yeah.
2: that 100%. I, w- I want to rewind a bit and agree with what you said about human factors. Yeah. And training and human factors, we never had that. Certainly not in the Australasian College. It was very much here's the <laughs> operation, do it. These are the complications. Make sure you know what the complications are. Mention them to the patient. But no, nothing ab- about um, leadership, situation analysis. You know when things mm-hmm. are going wrong. And that's that's one of the good things that's come out since the year two thousand. Actually, we understand we're working in teams. Yeah. and uh, you have a place in the team and, and, and you've got to look at where things can go wrong and how you get the best out of that person and, and so that's, that's not technical skills in surgery that's, that's human skills in, in reading people and surgeons by and large because they're a subset that, that often quite focused are not necessarily very good at that and not, not realising their shortcomings and how that, that the negative effect they can have on the team particularly if they are somewhat uh, autocratic
0: so, yeah. so from a medical student perspective, mm-hmm. we, we kind of came into this conversation thinking about surgical skills. But actually, from my perspective now, it seems that surgical skills may not be the most important thing for medical students. I think that's um.
2: right. Yeah, sorry, I do not want to interrupt, but I, I would agree with that uh, totally. I think what they do here with the surgical skills course for, for students, which we never had, is all you need. I mean, that, I, I've seen you and your colleagues likes of you and your colleagues doing instrument uh, finger ties, which I couldn't do until I was a registrar, you know, and I don't think it's that that important. And in terms of career, especially these days, my thinking is you'd be better to focus on your portfolio. And I was lucky. I, I did a research project as a medical student, which gave me a publication in The Lancet, which was by poor chance, and that really helped my CV. And the reality is surgery is a competitive sport and, mm-hmm. you know, and, and if you're doing, wanting to do very high-end things like, like neurosurgery, you're going to have to make big life sacrifices f- you know, from your family, starting from when you're a student and certainly when you're a junior doctor. And getting that portfolio up as as much as possible, and making the most of the relationships that Rob was talking about. You know, when you were, when you're with a trainer, you want to try and if you want to get the most out of it, you want to try and be the the best trainee, <laughs> which means you know th- silly things like punctuality, and uh, knowing the re- knowing the patient, having seen the patient. To summarise that. It's diligence. You've got to be prepared to be diligent. And it's not necessary for the rest of your life. It's for a period of time. It's it's almost like a pressure cooker time where you get as try and get as much out as you can to get where you're going. Yeah, am not Paul, saying could, you should change personality. But I, I, I couldn't
1: agree with you more. That whole thing of diligence and, and really getting back to why we're all doing medicine anyway is that we're here caring for patients. If I've got a trainee that really knows the patient, the person, the context of everything they are well, I'm immediately more confident as a as a trainer. You know, they've really seen the mm. patient. They really understand the story. The reason why we're doing the operation. So that, always just getting back to the basic principle of why we all doctors in mm. the first place. The other thing is that um, I don't know what the right term is for it, but just enthusiasm. Mm. You know, that it, as a trainer, um, you know, your heart just goes out to. Uh, a trainee, whether a med student or a, you know, surgical trainee into their career of enthusiastic, as you're describing Paul, on time, mm. know the patients, wanting to learn. Yeah. It, it just rubs off, it becomes part of that. Mm. I want to train that person. Yeah. I'll go the extra mile to do yes. that. So it's, it's, it's all simple human stuff at the end of the day.
2: Enthusiasm, absolutely right. Enthusiasm and diligence doesn't need to be the most clever person or the guy that's written the most papers or the or the girl that's written the, the most papers it's it's about applying and getting the most out of you can of that rela- that relationship and, and I'm sure every trainer that has a trainee like that that is making sure they're there on time they know the patient they've read up beforehand mm-hmm. you know w- w- about the operation and have sensible questions to ask train is going to feel huge pressure to make sure that trainee gets a lot to do
0: I think that's some excellent advice for all our learners out there and mm-hmm. our trainees so yeah. what advice would you offer our trainers how can they um, be the best trainers that they can be
2: this is n- the same words going to come up again it's mm-hmm. enthusiasm mm-hmm. yeah enthusiasm yeah yeah uh, you wake uh,
1: up in the morning and yeah. you know what are you doing today I'm, I've got a clinical on an operating list that it's going to be great. I've got some better students or so got trainees yeah. with me um, rather than, or, uh, you know, I'd rather not have them there. That's yeah. that's It's an enthusiasm for doing stuff. And there's so much joy that comes from that. I, I can't tell you how much sort of towards the end of a career, how much, I don't know what the right word is, satisfaction, you get on looking back on the... the trainees that are now consultants out there doing stuff working they're yeah. working all over the UK Paul you've got hundreds of them I could think in um, that have learnt some of those skills from you that's you know, I don't know what it is but it's a, it's a, it's a there's a joy that comes from that um, and Paul I, I had a question for you because I met you when you were trainer Yes. In Edinburgh. That means I must be a bit older yes. than you. <laughs> Paul's a <laughs> few ant- years older the than old guy, me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and you'd come in when endoscopic sinus surgery was still in its infancy. You know, the endoscope had been developed. It was there as a tool. Um, it was an era in the early 1900, 1900s, 1990s. 1990s. Yeah. Um, where unfortunately, a great bit of technology, but an awful lot of harm being done uh, with, you know, correct use of the technology and the equipment. You came into Edinburgh to teach us as a group of registrars, I was still a registrar in Edinburgh, and it was just like, wow, um, this was different to anything we'd ever seen before. And what I was struck by was the preparation you did. Yes. Mm. I don't know if you could elaborate on that, but that's that prep that goes on before an actual procedure that really makes it safer more effective than everything else.
2: Yeah, it, it starts with the things that you spoke about before, the, pa- the patient counselling, the pros and cons, making people aware that there are non-surgical options, uh, and that wasn't talked to us very well as trainees. I think I was lucky with that particular discipline, endoscopic sinus surgery, that the whole culture of it was very much based on risk-benefit uh, risk, risk benefit analysis for the patient, and because this, you're, you're working in a very potentially very bloody field. It was a bit like ear. ear surgery, a lot of the skills were crossed over, um, middle ear surgery that is, where you, you, ca- you can't necessarily use diathermy and such like as you would normally, so you have to do a lot of preparation beforehand uh, with, with, with vasoconstriction. But the whole culture of endoscopic sinus surgery was very good for teaching, you know, and, and all of us that came in on that crest of the wave uh, had this culture of, of teaching and simulation you know, that's how, that's how I got into it. I, I'd never thought that I was going to end up being a, a teacher of surgery. It was that skill, the fact that I, I just happened to have it when there was a need. And I went in with a couple of other surgeons and developing courses and then I realized this is me, this is really what I, I, I love doing. I love showing people how to do stuff and making it possible so that they don't feel they're at sea where because I've been on so many courses where even with simulation it was like a lecture in the morning and then you just go and have a go, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, have a, be a have-a-go hero. And, and there's no way that you're going to get the most out of it. You have to break it down into stages. This is the first step you do. Do that first, practice it. And once you're, you're happy become with good it, at m- it. Yeah, yeah b- move on to the next stage. Um, and, and, but not every pe- person that does surgery will ha- be interested in that. And, and we have to accept that. There, there are those of us that get a lot out of, just as you describe, I mean, um, if you're doing a rhinoplasty operation, I'm not sure if I should say this ethically, mm-hmm. but it's a lot of fun. You know, mm-hmm. it, it, yeah. surgery is fun. It should mm-hmm. be fun most of the time. Sometimes, you know, you're, you're wetting your pants because there, something happens mm-hmm. and it's unforeseen. You've got to deal with it, which is also part of, keep, keeps you focused and is, and is interesting. But as a trainee, you're giving things up. Mm-hmm. You're giving up what you enjoy doing, whether it's a thyroid operation for Rod or for me, rhinoplasty, and letting someone else do it. But once you move on to that stage and you get something out of it, it gives you more, I think. Yeah. You know, it, 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 it gives you more. I mean, I, I really enjoyed the surgery, but I enjoyed teaching it. And es- especially when you saw someone doing it well or someone that was not very confident and step by step suddenly being able to do it and uh, if i look i look at my colleagues now the ones that are that have been good clinicians all the way through weren't necessarily the guys that were the best technically Mm
1: -hmm. yeah and katie your question about what the skills you need to be a good trainer i think is and how you manage time as well Mm -hmm. because um you as the skilled old surgeon that's been around for years can whip through an operation much quicker than a Uh, a a trainee can, it's pretty obvious, but it's actually planning an operating list with that in mind. Um, Really, really important to um, have the the time that you're not hurrying a trainee through something um, and saying, oh no, I need to step in because we've got a list to finish and taking over. Actually planning the list to have the right number of patients on that you, you can do the training well. T- time management from a trainer perspective I think is super imp- super important definitely
0: yeah um. and, and thinking back and looking back over your careers and from the very start of your um, training to to the end um, what advice would you give yourself when you were starting out
2: in teaching um, maybe not to be quite so hard on myself I think you know <laughs> you, and to be a bit more optimistic I, I, I suppose I was just personally worried it wasn't going to work out um, and take a bit more time out. I think uh, one of the regrets I have, because I came to do my fellowship here, <laughs> but one of the mm. regrets I have is I didn't do more fellowships elsewhere, maybe even work in the third world. I was a medical yeah. student in the third world, but I would have liked to have had a, a, a year doing maybe more plastic surgery and things like that. Um, yeah. yeah, Paul, it. I agree with you. No? I, I
1: had the privilege, I would suggest, of, of working in a lot of different countries and different cultures and you always learn something so you know if you're say working in Nepal doing ear camps up in the Himalayas I always it wasn't me and our team going out there to teach them yes we did a bit of that but we learned an awful lot from them as to different ways of doing things so um, moving around it can be a bit disruptive but seeing different ways of doing something from different cultures different places um We had a lovely link with the Czech Republic for a while, worked in the States, Africa, and different parts of the UK. There's always something new to learn in a different place. I think you can get stuck in a... If you stay in just one place and learn from that group of trainers, that's what, you know, you'd probably be very good, but you could be better, I think, if you picked up ideas from elsewhere. Yeah,
2: I would agree with that. Every every, every opportunity you can to to do have experience elsewhere it's, it's, it's worth elective seeing elective fellowships and it's only for a limited period of your yeah, life I mean yeah. anyone that's going to take on surgery is, is going to be making a personal sacrifice that will affect them and their family as long as you buy into that and no it's not forever uh, once you get through you're going to be in a job for 20, 30 or well, 30 years probably uh, in a fairly stable sit, sit, situation but before that you want to make the most of that time time if you can mm-hmm. I mean I was lucky I because I did it later in that we we would do rhinoplasty and and, uh, endoscopic sign surgery courses in other places so I I learnt a bit that way but it still wasn't quite the same as having actually worked in the third world for a year. Um, So there's uh, there's always some regrets. (laughs) (laughs) And
1: and Katie there's one other thing that I've always um, learnt as a trainer is when you're running courses, you know the likes of the courses we have in the skills unit, is having other trainers part of those mm. courses from other parts of the world and other parts of, say, Scotland or invited people. You learn so much from being a trainer at, on those days, you know, from, from from your colleagues and your peers. Just different, nu- the little nuances and the little things that you can't read in a textbook. You know, textbook stuff's pretty easy, all of us can do that, but it's the little subtle things that aren't there that are the, you know, really add another dimension to what you do as a, as a as a doctor
2: one of the great benefits of being a trainee, you've got to be on the button all the time you, know, you can't afford to have gone out drinking the night before because you, you trainees can be quite demanding and we're, we've talked to them in, in a subservient role but a lot of the surgical trainees are very able and can be intellectually challenging so you've, you've got to know your stuff and so you've got you've got to keep up yeah. And it's good for your practice as a doctor. I think it's tipped. really good
1: for your practice. I think if, if you didn't train or teach, mm. you would almost by definition fall back. Because, mm. you know, everything moves and it moves quite quickly. The changes are pretty rapid. You know, when I look at the moment, it's probably robotic-assisted surgery yes. is the new frontier. Where is that, that line of surgery going to go? You've mm. got to be in there as a trainer if you want to make that part of your, your career. If you try and do it by yourself, it just won't work. And
0: I guess for medical students who are maybe very enthusiastic and a little impatient, do we need to wait until the end of our careers or, um, or at least consultancy in order to start skills training?
2: Oh, no, I think yeah. you, you, it will happen as once you're on a surgical training program. It, it'll be built into it. And anything you can do in the meantime, and a lot of it's quite prescribed now, and. that it, core trainees will be expected to do a basic surgical skills course so there are a lot of opportunities there it, it, it's about applying yourself and having the diligence to do it and, and making time and being prepared to give up other things you know so that you you mm-hmm. can be competitive for that for that period of time and if you can make the decision as a medical student that's a big advantage you know in that you can start building up your portfolio if possible, it doesn't have to be that way I mean we, we know lots mm-hmm. of uh, surgeons, men and women that have done lots of other things first I'm thinking of Mary Shanks yeah. uh, who had a family and was a staff grade surgeon and then she, she became Scotland's lead cochlear implant surgeon I mean that's very high end surgery and she probably didn't start doing that until she was well into her 40s so although the system at the moment doesn't seem very flexible there often are other, other ways in so n- n- never, give up, never give up on yourself but be true to yourself as well. You know, if you've, you've got to try and choose what's right for your personality. For me, general practice wasn't, <laughs> you know, because it was just too difficult. Yeah. But it's, it's, this kind of surgery was the right thing for me. I was really interested in microsurgery, so, so, so it, work, it, it worked out. And as, as a medical student, don't worry about it too much. Be, be flexible. Have yeah. an open mind. And
1: you can take your time, you know, yeah. that, that rushing into keeping up with your peers. That's, um, you know, oh, they've qualified and they've, no, it's a long journey and you can tailor that to suit you. you know if you want to take time out and go to you know have a little break try something different you'll always be able to c- get back in again there's a sort of fear of of taking time out mm. to do other things and that's not the real world
2: so it's that's never a great too late. thing about it's never too uh, the great thing about move sorry to interrupt but moving yeah. to another country for a period of time if you, if you go to australia or the states mm-hmm. there's invariably a gap between jobs so you know, you've got a chance to take two months and, and do a bit of travel. Yeah,
1: yeah, and have that fun. And um, I think you've got back to, you know, when do you start almost being a trainer? I would suggest that you are a trainer as we speak. You and your team in the Surgical Society, you are training the younger medical students. You know, so those skills you are starting to develop now. Um, and you'll just gently take those into your, into your practice. So the stuff you're doing as a team is fantastic.
2: Thank I agree with that. that and yeah. I think the only barriers that, that set us apart are, are age and experience yeah. and uh, we would call ourselves doctors, you're not a doctor yet, but effectively it's the same, it's, it's just a transition over many years and we, I'm probably not now, we are students still, I always thought of myself. Still as a student. Because you oh, to learn You're always every day. learning. And, always and you, don't, learning. you don't change. You're not suddenly become, become a different person when you've got your MBCHB. <laughs> you're still going to be the same Katie. Yeah. but You'll be Dr. Katie, but you'll yeah. still be the same. <laughs> and, and you'll still probably have the same attitude uh, uh, to learn, hopefully. Yeah.
0: So take your time. Enjoy the journey. Yes. Don't be afraid to take breaks.
1: Be enthusiastic. Mm-hmm. You know, all those sort of things. Diligent. I think those are sort of probably a few words that have come through that really ring true to me I
0: think um something else I'd really like to pick up on is an interesting thing that you said about um finishing your training and then making not uh, having the biggest commitment over your training so for our medical students who are maybe a little nervous about work-life balance and making the commitment to surgery you said that that somehow changes when you become a consultant how how does that
2: change? I think it's easier to get a work life balance as as a consultant because you've got a right to work part time, and if you if you're a um, man or a woman having children and you're going to be a, a big part of the caring, um, then you know that's that, those are decisions that are easier to make. Then they're not impossible while you're training, and we know. Yeah, I mean the less than full time training
1: yeah. scheme. We've got a few colleagues that have come through yeah. that, and they are brilliant doctors yeah. because yeah. of that. They've had a. It's almost been a benefit of yes. having a longer, but, uh, you know, slightly fragmented, but yep. in the end they're very good, very wise, there's, that, that wisdom they tend to be come, women
2: more, don't they? I mean, that's the sexist thing. That's the of sexist like bias she, she, that we she, have She in. became Scotland's top cochlear yeah. surgeon. Yeah, I think that I, I still would, and I know it's in, in some ways, we would have never said this probably as trainees to our mates, that diligence is important. But I think it is important, mm-hmm. and and e- e- if you are even if you're a part-time trainee, which is fine, or less than full-time, and you've got family commitments, to make the most of that time that you're working, you want to try and be diligent. And, yeah, uh, and
1: and Paul, the diligence to my mind goes back to some really simple, basic stuff. of, yeah. You know, if you say you were being involved in a tonsillectomy, one of the sort of common ENT procedures, you know, your diligence before getting there is really having an in-depth knowledge of the anatomy particularly the blood, blood vessels that supply the tonsil, the tonsillar bed, the sensory supply, all these sort of things, really doing your basic homework before actually doing the practical thing. Yeah.
2: And so knowing the patient.
1: Knowing the patient yeah. well. They're really simple things, yeah. you know. Anatomy, physiology, knowing the patient, knowing the context. The skill that you get after doing years and years of, say, what a so-called simple operation like a tonsillectomy is what to do when something goes wrong. And you can only gain that through exposure to the real situation of something going wrong. And that's why, to my mind, our training takes time. Yes. You know, you know, a tonsillar bleed, bleed, one of the scariest things that I've ever, they etched in my memory. And yes. A tonsillectomy is not a simple operation. No. Things start going wrong, it's spectacular in, in the, the stress caused to you. The yes. potential death of a patient um, is, uh, you know, it, it's 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 just... All the diligence and the team that rallies around when those sort of things happen is so yeah. important
0: so when things do go wrong how do you handle that from the perspective of a, a trainer who's training a trainee in that scenario
1: yeah i mean i think it's there's a judgment call that has to take place and i would always if some if you can almost preempt something is maybe going to go wrong here in other words you're getting a little bit close to that the internal jugular or the carotid artery or something, just mitigating those little things, trying to prevent it going wrong, I think is is, is probably top of the list. And then when something does start going wrong is, you know, particularly you know, with an experienced trainee, is saying, look, are you comfortable in dealing with this? And in other words, is that trust thing that goes on? Mm. And if they immediately say, mm, no, would you mind stepping in? Then you s- step in as the surgeon with a little bit more years of experience behind you. Um, so there's some really difficult judgement calls that have to be made quite quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is quick quick decisions that go on across a, an operative field, you know, um, but putting safety at the top of that list, you know, what's going to be the safest way to get out of this situation, because things do go wrong.
0: Again, I can imagine that comes with experience and with practice, deciding how to handle that situation.
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, surgery is not without risk. And Great privilege to be a surgeon. You're actually oh, cutting into someone else's, someone else's body, and uh, we've got to remember that uh, all, all the time. Never lose sight of the of the privileged position.
1: Oh, Paul, I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. It's 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 a real privilege to be you know having that role um, in yeah. just helping people through that sort of journey. But it being very people centric, I would suggest, is the Skill, whether you're a trainer or a trainee, it's being patient-centered in what you do.
2: A couple of points about what, what when things go wrong, you have to face that as a trainer that you're you're carrying an additional risk, not only the risk you make to the patient doing what you're doing, but the risk the trainee is, and you have mm-hmm. to carry that risk. But and from a philosophical point of view, if you don't do that, we won't have any surgeons in the future. So it's a risk that the patient and the Trainee and the surgeon have, have to accept, and and sometimes things do go wrong that unforeseen, a quick accident of a instrument going the wrong way. I can think think of that mm. happening once or twice, and it, it it's just one of those things. And what is important is that you support the trainee, as yeah, a trainee. particularly support, in the aftermath you don't, you, you don't of what might happen, uh, yeah.
1: and the aftermath can be quite devastating. Yeah. You know, death. Yeah. I've, I've I've unfortunately been involved in things going wrong that you hadn't predicted where a patient had come in with all the expectations of being cured of a problem and not waking up massive consequence to the whole team and and being very cognizant of the emotional context particularly to the trainee that had been involved in that and of having proper debriefs emotionally in in, in when things go wrong and being completely honest when things go wrong. You know, mm-hmm. so errors that occur I can think of one I did a lot of parotidectomies through the years that's been yes. my yeah. sort of skill I would suggest and yes there's occasional time that a facial nerve gets injured due to diathermy or just one little movement that you hadn't planned but it happened is going around immediately post-op and having that awkward conversation with the patient and their family that something inadvertent happened but we will help you through in the next set of stages but being honest
2: yeah, that was very much Rod's forte is teaching protodectomy and that is ultimately huge risk. You're dealing with a healthy person, and the major risk is to the facial nerve, and if, if, the, tra- if the trainee get, goes to the wrong place and damages the nerve, they've got a paralyzed face for the rest of their life. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's a huge risk that you're, ca- that you're carrying as a, as, a tr- as a trainer. And we, were, as trainees, were never taught very well about the issue of how you deal with complications, I don't mm-hmm. think that the complications for me were a list that you'd come up and, and uh, reel them off in In a textbook. Yeah. yeah, from a textbook, You're not actually what you do, how you manage the patient, and historically surgeons have not been good at this because you're, you're dealing what you may perceive as failure, but the reality is, from a statistical point of view, complications will occur, you know, uh, one one percent of thrombectomies will have a, a very severe hemorrhage, and th- and that's a that's just a a, a um, statistical event from the, the number of procedures that that are done, and we're not that needs to be a big part of education. I think how to deal with a damaged patient, because historically. Surgeons have a tendency to avoid those patients or that's the Mm -hmm. one that had the bad tonsillectomy bleed and or blame somebody else You know blame someone else get the trainee to see the parents Mm. Um, Because you know, I'm just going to deny you know denial is a great um, Mm -hmm. Protective mechanism, but Mm -hmm. the opposite is true. You have to be in there and and use your your doctor skills more than ever uh, in dealing with the damaged patient and and see them more take responsibility and and it's all part of appropriate caring practice. You can't just walk away, yeah. which is the natural thing you want to do, you know, when you're mucked up.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's the nature of the beast. Things do go wrong. Not always surgically. Sometimes it's anesthetically. It's something completely unpredicted um, before. But that's yes. the nature of mm-hmm. medicine. It's not just surgery. It's it's everything we do. It's risky. Um, and I think one of the skills I hopefully <laughs> passed on to Trainees through the years is to to not always operate. You know this 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 idea that you can solve things with operations. Yeah, we like operating, we like doing that sort of stuff, but sometimes conservative management of a problem um, is better. Um, and that that's a difficult um, skill to pass on. You know, a parotid lump in an in an 80 year old, it's benign. It's not going to cause any problems really in their lifetime. In different surgeons' ethos and way of working, um, some surgeons say, oh, you have to have that operation because there's a risk of it maybe becoming cancerous. Having a far more in-depth conversation with somebody, you might avoid doing the operation. Get them through their life with their lump uh, without any risk attached. So the skill of uh, maybe not operating is a difficult one to teach and train for. Um, It's all about just sharing information better with patients and that mm-hmm. you know in realistic medicine the whole theme of better shared decision making is high up on that radar and I think it is the most important step is that first step not not the step that you in the operating room already it's the stuff that goes on in the clinics and proper shared information before stepping into surgery
2: yeah, couldn't agree brilliant. more it is, yeah. it's all about person-centered care isn't it yeah. as, as a doctor Focusing on what's actually best for that. What matters what, to you for that particular that, yeah. person. Put yourself in their position. What, what is actually best for them, based on their age and what the risks are, is a a, a sufficient problem that justifies the risks of surgery and as a medical student my idea of surgery was well you're a technician aren't you the patient comes into the room and they need an operation so you're just going to be doing (laughs) operations all the time it's not like that at all certainly it it may be a bit more like that in general surgery possibly but even then they'll deal with patients have abdominal pain that's no specific cause and and in our Mm. specialty each of us had, had had this for me with rhinoplasty especially cosmetic rhinoplasty, 50% of the people that come, you don't want to operate on them. They've usually got some form of body dysmorphism, you know, which is increasingly common these days. So, you you, you operate on them at your peril, and mm-hmm. I, I can think of the, most, the patients that are haunted me most have been those that had a degree of that, that I've operated on. Mm-hmm. And uh, if I had my time again, I, I, I wouldn't have, you know, that, those that expected far too much from, a, from a, a rhinoplasty operation, that it would change their life, and even when you, you thought you got a good outcome, they didn't see it that way and wanted more done, so um, I think you, it, it's got to be person, person-centred, and, and surgery is not just about operating, you're still a doctor. At the end of the day, mm-hmm. it's, it's the skills of a doctor.
1: And Paul, you brought a word into that conversation, it's all about expectations. It's what are the expectations of, of the, the patient and their family and everybody has. And 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 trying to achieve those. You very rarely exceed people's expectations. Medicine's mm-hmm. not like that. But at least if you can... A- achieving the expectations they came in with... Um, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a word and an outcome that I think is worth, worth always focusing on before you actually do something.
0: Mm-hmm. We've had some brilliant advice and um, it seems that... Skills training it goes far beyond the actual surgical skills, um, but I would really love to hear just to finish up uh, one thing that you most admire about each other. That could be could be skills training, could be beyond that as as surgeons or as people.
1: Who wants to go first? <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm I through. have a whole lot. Yeah, no, no, you no. go first, Paul. Uh, uh. No,
2: Rodney's a polymath. You know, <laughs> and he's such he's so enthusiastic, and he co- he covers not just the training bases, but. All of these other things, and as a fantastic medical student teacher, probably probably the best that I've ever seen. So that, that's, that's how I admire I Rodney, admire <laughs> apart from all of the wonderful surgeries done in, in quite risky areas, and dealing with patients with pretty awful conditions and, and making them feel that they're well cared for.
1: Yeah, well, th- th- thank you. And I, I mean, I when I describe what, what are my skills I've had as a surgeon is I've become very skillful at breaking bad news and how to do that well. In you know, just definitely, you know, being a cancer surgeon, so yeah, yeah, it's one of the few things I think I hopefully did did well. You never do it perfectly. It's really interesting. You always walk away from those sort of conversations, and think, God, I could have done that better. Uh, it's just the nature of the beast. It's a uh, huge thing. Yeah. Um,
2: Isn't the, the so end, potentially the end of someone's life? Yeah, those, so those is, sort yeah. of
1: things. And uh, and and, Paul, I think the s- thing that I probably admire in relation to what you do is your patience um, in 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 all levels. You know, your patience in spending time with patients and and giving them time to get a deeper understanding of them. and Your patience with um, a young trainee that really needs more time to to do something. Not not. Hurrying things on and making people feel feel uncomfortable, giving people space to talk to to, to learn something. So yeah, I would put patience in there. Is so it one of your real skills?
0: Well, thank you so much, both of you, for for sharing your thoughts with us. It's it's been a wonderful conversation. I hope that you've uh, that you think the same.
2: Um, it's it's been interesting, very interesting experience. Thanks for, thanks for asking us along. Yeah, yeah thank
1: no, you so Katie much for and. I I think your whole concept of creating podcasts is a great one and uh, keep going because I think um, it'll be interesting to look back on some of these conversations in years to come just to see what a generation of of surgeons were thinking because it will be different. I have no doubt it'll be very different when you look back in X number of years as a surgeon, whatever you do, it will be different.
0: It's been absolutely wonderful to hear both of your thoughts and I'm sure that all our students will find it very, very interesting as well. So thank you. Thank you
1: both.
2: Have yeah, pleasure. Pleasure. Great.